as you get to the core of the system, like repo rates or treasure markets, something like that, that's basically one of those things where the Fed has to respond within days. You know, so so the stock market, they can respond within months. Credit markets, they, you know, they can respond within weeks. And when you get to the really core of the system, the banking sector or the treasury market, they basically have to respond within days. It becomes utterly disorderly and assets across the board basically go no bid. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hey, thanks for joining us here again. This episode, we are joined by the greatest of all time, the GOAT, Lynn Alden. Lynn obtained a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and a master's in engineering management with a focus on engineering economics and financial modeling. She has been a full-time investor and independent analyst performing investment research for over 15 years in various public and private capacities. She founded Lynn Alden Investment Strategy in 2016. Her goal is to provide institutional level research in plain English so that both institutional investors and retail investors can benefit from it. And boy, do they. She's also a board member at Swan Bitcoin. We have a lengthy conversation with Lynn, with Lynn talking 95% of the time explaining how the world works while we try to keep up slack-jawed. We cover her macro overview, headwinds for the bond market, steel manning the case for the Fed, how to protect yourself in this environment, gold, Bitcoin decoupling, the Luna UST shenanigans, stable coins, and the rise and fall of empires. We highly encourage you to subscribe to Lynn's newsletter and to read everything she writes. We can honestly say she's the most balanced, purest signal we have found, period. You can find all of her material at lynnalden.com or follow her on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. As always, you can follow us at blue underscore collar BTC, or you can send us an email at bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail. Blue Collar Bitcoin is sponsored by CoinKite. CoinKite is the manufacturer of the cold card, the block clock, and the open dime. The new cold card Mark IV is out in the wild. It retains the most robust security in the industry, allows you to air gap sign transactions if you're looking for the ultimate security in your cold storage. It does also allow a new feature, which is near-field communication. This allows major convenience to the process. You're always in full control of your security. If you don't want NFC, you can disable it with software on the device. If you don't trust the software, you can disable it permanently by cutting a trace on the circuit board. You have ultimate control of your setup. From air-gapped cold storage, where the device never interacts with the computer, to the NFC convenience and speed while still maintaining security. Whether you want absolute robust security or total convenience, the Cold Card Mark IV has you covered. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is also partnered with Ledin. Ledin is a very unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin-forward perspective. They are the first ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof of reserve attestation, where an independent public accountant regularly attests that the company is properly accounting for client assets. Simply put, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you've listened to this show much at all, you've certainly noticed that we advise our listeners to be careful, manage risk, and not get over leveraged. 
And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Ledin offers a menu of powerful financial services. Keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Ledin Bitcoin backed loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy a new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Ledin Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Ledin dollar loans and their trading service, if available. You can look into Ledin's well-architected menu of services at Ledin.io. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Lynn, to say we are privileged to have you on this show would be an understatement. Um, Josh, we usually try to like avoid going full-blown fanboy groupie right off the bat like kind of play it cool with our guests yeah but uh yeah lynn your perspective your writing your contributions have really affected the way we view markets and economics thanks for giving us some time this morning i appreciate that hope i can live up to some of that uh there's there's a ton we would like to explore i'm sure we won't get to all of it before we go too far into the meat and potatoes of like macro bitcoin um, your your background is very interesting. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know it. I first heard you sort of explain some of the way you grew up and what's influenced you on Coin Stories with Natalie Brunel. If you don't mind, uh, whatever you're comfortable sharing from how you grew up and then how that's influenced your passion for investing and your intellectual pursuits. Sure. So my, my early background was uh, in relative poverty. Uh, so my parents were split up uh, and I was living with my mother and we were homeless for a period of time. Uh, and so, you know, first we lived with relatives, then we lived in homeless shelters, then we lived in a car. Uh, and eventually that, that got bad enough. I then went to live with my father. Uh, and so then from there, I grew up in a trailer park. And so for whatever reason that, you know, that established a very strong kind of a savings mentality uh, mm -hmm. in me uh, from a very early age. Uh, and so, you know, like I basically established a really early interest in investing, economics, uh, you know, saving precious metals, uh, equities, uh, kind of, you know, expanded over time as I learned more. And when it came time to go to college, I was kind of torn between finance and engineering because technology and science was my other big area of interest. And eventually I, I, I chose engineering. Uh, and so I officially pursued engineering and then worked as an engineer. Uh, but I continue to have that passion. Uh, and so for, for investing. And so I continue to write about for example, stocks uh, with like, you know, little anonymous blogs and just kind of honed my writing skills because I was never a great writer. Uh, you know, in school, I was never, you know, English was always my weakest subject compared to math and science. Uh, and so only just putting in tons and tons of time and specifically writing about something that's interesting to me, was I able to become halfway decent at it? Um, and then so in the engineering field, I eventually transitioned into engineering management and running the finances of an engineering facility, being their head engineer. Uh, and so, uh, but eventually I, I left that to pursue financial research full time. So that's what I do now. I, I'm an independent financial analyst. Uh, I'm also uh, the independent board director for Swan Bitcoin. Uh, and I'm now involved with some Bitcoin uh, venture capital. Very cool. What a journey. Seriously. Yeah, it's been fun. It seems to a lot of uh, Bitcoin plebs that it doesn't make sense for these negative yielding bonds to exist. 
Can you give us some reasoning as to why this does still exist? A lot of it is based on market structure. And so it exists because policymakers have to have it exist, right? And so they right. regulate it into existence. And, it, you know, if we go back long enough, uh, you know, gold was at the core of the system. And all these li- all these other paper claims were basically claims for gold. Uh, and eventually that was disassociated. Uh, and now we have kind of the circular system where the Federal Reserve, you know, their, their liabilities are banknotes, basically all the currency circulation, uh, physical banknotes, as well as the bank reserves that commercial banks have at the Fed, right? And so those are their primary liabilities, and their assets are treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and then, so what's that, what backstop the treasury market? Well, whenever the treasury market has a problem, the Fed buys more treasuries. So, you know, the dollar is backed by treasuries, and the treasuries are backed by new dollar creation. It's this kind of circular, yeah, uh, it's proof, like a perpetual recur- motion machine. Exactly, perpetual yeah. motion machine, recursive proof of stake, basically, uh, and and that's how it's been designed. And of course, it's it's able to work because it is enforced legally. Number one, uh, and there is some degree of decentralization, which is the only way it's been able to last this long. You know, if you basically compare central banks around the world, uh, you know, if you look at something like Turkey, where you know, their leader can just keep firing the central bank head. Uh, that's a very undecentralized system. It's almost completely decentralized. Uh, uh, whereas we look at something like the Federal Reserve, it's kind of like the the most decentralized out of a number of centralized systems, where it's not truly decentralized, but there's enough inertia there. There's mm. enough kind of separate parts that it, it's able to last quite a number of decades. And so as, as you go from the periphery, from frontier markets, uh, and, and you move in towards uh, developed markets, uh, and especially the United States, you get towards these, these, you know, these century-long institutions, or in the Bank of England's case, many centuries, uh, and and so they have enough degree of decentralization to kind of keep it going, at, at least for a period of time until you run into the end of a long-term debt cycle, and then that's when they kind of run out of room. And it's during those major crises, so in the 1940s, and then here in the 2020s, uh, where you know, basically all the decentralization is pushed aside. Uh, and, you know, when you have a crisis, the, the Federal Reserve, the central bank in whatever country becomes captured by the government. And so the way I would describe it is that there are large pools of capital that are mandated to own sovereign bonds. And that could be for a number of reasons. Basically, they have to own cash and bonds can sometimes offer higher yields than cash. So that's number one. And then there's also structures around they have to own bonds specifically. And then, the, you know, layered on top of that, there are a number of investors that, you know, they have near-term liabilities, and that could be defined as, you know, a few months, a few years, right. maybe even up to up to, up to to five years or more, a decade, you know, if they're retirees, for example, where they can't lose their capital and their expenses are denominated in, in dollars or euros or yen. And so they have to have assets that are relatively non-volatile because they can't be drawing them down more rapidly than they than they you know, plan to. And so even if they're losing value over time, at least they're, you know, hopefully not losing value quickly. And so then there are people that just have a disinflationary outlook. And I've been on the opposite side of that, obviously, but there are people that hold that view. So you kind of layer all the different reasons why people might own bonds. But yeah, a lot of it is just regulated. One thing I think about with this discussion and this whole, you know, fixed income arena is an area Josh and I have really been trying to stretch ourselves because as people that aren't trading credit for a living. There's, there's, it's so complex. We're actually both reading the bond book right now for the recommendation of Joe Carlosare. And, and Joe has also been 
in a really healthy way, challenging some of our viewpoints on this stuff. One way I characterize it is just, it is the foundation of the house and you, there's no other residence right now. So you can talk shit all you want about how the foundation's cracking, but unless you want to be in a tent in a rainy backyard, it underpins so much of how the current system operates. I also think of Nick Batia's book, Layered Money. Like Sovereign debt and treasuries are the base layer of how the entire financial system works. And until something's ready to receive, it's going to continue. What do, you, what do you sort of see as the trajectory of, let's just even say treasury markets? Like where do you think yields are going? We got a question on Twitter that was talking about how quantitative tightening might impact this. If you don't mind, give us just a high level view on sort of your, your outlook, let's say six months to 18 months on credit markets. Sure. Yeah. So one is we can separate sovereign bonds from credit markets because credit, you know, that generally refers to, you know, corporate credit, for example, uh, bonds that can actually lose value nominally compared to government bonds uh, that, you know, basically are, are considered risk free. Uh, and so what we're seeing right now is that treasury yields have been going up uh, and, uh, you know, corporate bond yields have been going up. And that caught a lot of people off guard. Because they have this historical view that if you have an economic decelerating environment, yields go down. And that's often mm -hmm. what happens. So, you know, however you want to measure it, I, I like to use the purchasing managers index, right? So, declining PMI environment, usually bond yields are going down. And instead, in this cycle, you've seen them go up. And for people that had very inflationary or stagflationary views, that's not been surprising. Basically, a lot of economists have a demand side model. They're like, people are buying less, therefore, inflation has to go down. But you know, a lot, if you ask them those same people, what does the uh, capex look like for the oil sector? They they won't be able to answer that, right? So th there's not a lot of kind of balance between people that are looking at both the demand side and the supply side of the things we buy. Uh, and so because we have all these supply side problems, we've had higher inflation. Uh, you know, along with just the fact that a lot of money was printed, right? So there's there are two sides right. of the same coin. So a lot of money was created. Uh, and then there's real world constraints on the supply side. So we're getting inflation. So even though the economy is decelerating, it's risk off in many ways, bond yields have been very turbulent. Now, eventually that gets to a point where it breaks something or, uh, you know, basically investors start to realize how risky every other thing else is. And then they pour back into bonds. And so that can take different forms. So in, in Japan, they did formal yield curve control, where basically the central bank has an unlimited bid to buy any amount of Japanese government bonds, um, uh, you know, above a certain price, meaning below a, you know, above a certain yield. Right. Um, and so they basically backstop, they, they prevent that from going any higher, which is the same thing that the United States did in the 1940s, which is something I've covered extensively. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, now I, I think as we go forward, there's a couple major variables to watch as far as U.S. treasury markets, right? So one is that for because the dollar is strengthening considerably, foreign buyers are not really buying treasuries. So that's a source of demand that's, that's dried up. Uh, banks, U.S. commercial banks, are already historically full of treasuries as a percentage of their assets compared to where they've been in prior cycles. Uh, so that's a problem. On the other hand, you know, because the treasury already kind of pre-issued a lot of debt, it doesn't have a lot of issuance expected over the next six months or so. After that, it has quite a bit, but the next six months, maybe not a ton. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we're starting to see, you know, long duration treasury yields kind of peak out here. Uh, I don't try to do these kind of near term trading. There's lots of little, little variables that can influence that. Mm -hmm. But essentially, I think that, you know, even though I still think inflation is going to be sticky for a long time, uh, I think 
some of these bond yields might have seen their their local highs or, or you know somewhat near to it. I think that if, even if they go higher, I think it'll be less explosive than we saw before. Uh, but if you go look out long enough, when you get back to a ton more treasury issuance and some of these pools of capital still not buying, that's when you could get very disorderly markets, right? Yeah. And so it can show up not just in yields, but also in illiquidity. And so, for example, in March 2020, mm-hmm. when the world was coming down, first bond yields fell because everyone said, you know, everything's crashing. I got to get into treasuries. Right. And that worked. But then it got so bad uh, and the dollar spiked that the foreign sector began selling treasuries. And so you actually started to see bond yields back up. Uh, now, they never got super high, but instead the treasury market just broke. Basically, there it almost went no bid. Uh and so that's when the, the Federal Reserve had to come in and buy a trillion dollars of treasuries with, with new money creation in three weeks uh, yeah. just to reliquify the market and stop that doom loop from, from happening. So when it locks up like that, that is that is kind of a force the Fed's hand kind of moment. Is that an accurate way to describe it? Like it's you can play the game with all these. But when when things actually lock up the way you just described, if they weren't to step in, what would the implications be? So the implication there would essentially be a economic meltdown, financial yeah. market meltdown. I mean, you, it, it basically would start at the periphery and then move up. So, you know, a lot of people, for example, back in 2018, the famous Powell pivot, they were tightening policy and then they suddenly had to stop tightening policy. And a lot of people were like, oh, look, it's because the S&P 500 fell 20%. And it, that's not the case. It's what happened underneath the surface that mm. made them reverse. It's, it's the fact that credit markets, specifically junk bonds, which are closer to the uh, core of the system, uh, they they became illiquid. They're, they were frozen. No no junk bonds were issued for six weeks, uh, and so they had to make note of that and be like, okay, if that if that continues for a number of months, uh, that's when you get start to get layoffs, recessions, company failures, um, and even if you go in further than that, so if you go back to like say late 2019, you had the repo spike. So the 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 rate that you know overnight lending rates between financial institutions broke, it spiked, uh, and so as you get to the core of the system, like repo rates or treasury markets, something like that, that's basically one of those things where the Fed has to respond within days. Yeah. You know, so so the stock market they can respond within months, credit markets they, you know, they can respond within weeks. And when you get to the really core of the system, the banking sector or the treasury market, they basically have to respond within days. It becomes utterly disorderly and assets across the board basically go no bid. Understanding all of this that you know in the bond market, the Fed or the federal government has to roll over something like $9 trillion in the next couple of years. So if you're saying, um, and I think we agree, foreigners are not generally buying these things. Banks are not generally buying. Who's going to be buying these treasuries when we need to roll over $9 trillion in the next couple of years? So some of it will be the existing, you know, so basically that's not $9 trillion in net new debt. That's a lot of it's being re-rolled. So a lot of it, the existing buyers, as their bonds mature, Will you know put that capital into okay. the same bond, same type of bond? So that's number one. Uh, but then basically we have to look at net new issuance, uh, and that's where the problem is. That's where we're not seeing a lot of foreign demand. Uh, we're not you know commercial banks are kind of already tapped out. There's a couple levers that that they can pull. So one is the Federal Reserve can just buy more, so they can reverse course on their tightening policy. Uh, that would be awkward from a narrative point of view with inflation still as high right. as it is. Number two, they can do something like this gets tactical, but SLR changes. So basically banks have certain requirements for how much capital they have to have relative to assets. Uh, and they can do things like they can exclude bank reserves and treasuries from that calculation. They did that for a year during the pandemic crisis. 
uh, in part to make treasury markets more liquid. And they could do that again. They could tweak those rules so that banks can accumulate more treasuries uh, than they already have. They actually, you know, back in the 1940s and 50s, uh, we have to go back to that time period to find a time when banks had a higher percentage of their capital in treasuries than they do now. You know, we're basically at multi-decade highs for how concentrated they are in treasuries, but it, it has been higher in the past. And that was the last time that the U.S. government had basically a, a debt crisis, right? So they, they was, it was largely purchased by the commercial banks. Um, and so they can also do things like, you know, the treasury could buy foreign bonds if they want to try to weaken the dollar and allow then the foreign sector to buy more treasuries, right? So, so you know, the, the basically the treasury and the Fed could buy JGBs, Japanese government bonds, so that it relieves some pressure from Japan and then Japan can buy more treasuries. And then the Fed can still say, look, we're not doing quantitative easing. We're doing, you know, currency stability enactments, whatever they want to call it, whatever acronym they want to call it. And so there are things they can do around the margins that are not just blatant QE. Uh, but at the end of the day, something like QE or yield curve control could be needed uh, in the years ahead. Uh, I think probably sooner than people expect. Uh, I don't think we're going to go as many years as last time with, with the federal balance sheet not expanding. Uh, but, it, you know, it can go through at least a period of time. Something has to break uh, and get pretty ugly before I think they would reverse course. And yeah. I think, you know, we're kind of already flirting with some recession indicators here. Uh, and we're starting to see signs of treasury market illiquidity and signs of credit market problems. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see how that goes in the in the months and years ahead. Yeah. How do you characterize sort of shallow shortcut memes. Let's let's talk about the Bitcoin space in particular. The they can't using the word can't raise rates to X or mm. they can't tighten. They won't be able to. Is there any accuracy or legitimacy to those perspectives? What actually starts happening here as they're planning to unwind the balance sheet and take rates up multiple times like Explain to us where you think reality is between they're going to be able to pull it off no problem and uh, they can't be, they can't do that, especially with the backdrop of debt loads at near historic highs. Yeah, so usually absolute statements people have to be really careful of. They're often wrong, and often not always, but often reality is somewhere in the middle or more nuanced. And so, you know, I've been very careful to phrase it as I don't think the Fed's going to be able to normalize policy for the long term. Meaning that I don't think I think it's essentially impossible to get back to a structural environment of positive real rates, meaning rates that are higher than inflation, and mm -hmm. that you could you could hold treasuries in cash and not be losing purchasing power, right? Like you could see in, for example, the 1980s, uh, 1990s periods like that. I, I don't think we're going to be able to get back to that without some serious devaluations at least uh, happening first. Now. On the other hand, people get really extreme and they say the Fed can never raise rates. The Fed can never stop doing QE. And they're, you know, I mean, a lot of those people are just not focused on macro. So they're not looking at the right indicators. They're not looking at the at the right types of things. And as we see, they, they can raise rates. They can stop increasing their balance sheet, at least for a period of time. Now, the problem is that the Fed started late, right? So, for example, in the prior tightening cycle, you know, they stopped QE uh, and then they started raising rates during a a rising PMI environment, so an economic accelerating environment that was also actually combined with, uh, you know, the the corporate tax cuts that that happened under the Trump administration. So you had basically that was essentially a, a fiscal stimulus. So it was unfunded tax cuts. It was just adding debt, but it was it was kind of juicing the economy, and so they were able to tighten into that. But by the second half of 2018, it was already weakening, 
and that they, they kept tightening. And that's when they ran into the, the famous Powell pivot and market turbulence. And then they had to back up reverse course. And then they had to cut rates because you had GDP growth decelerating. Then you had the repo rate spike. So they had to change from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing. So kind of they took a number of hits until they had to start reversing course. And then, of course, they had the pandemic where they had to just throw the bazooka at it, the liquidity bazooka. So I think we're kind of in a similar environment where, you know, this time, though, they started too late. So they, they started tightening when we were already in kind of a late 2018 environment. We're already economic decelerating, uh, but they're more forceful because inflation's so much higher now than it was back then. And so, you know, they're in this narrative where official unemployment is still low, inflation's high, and their clear mandate, therefore, is to try to tighten until something breaks, until they start to see clear recession indicators, which we're getting early signs of, or unemployment spikes which is a lagging indicator that happens later. It takes time to play out. Other things break first. Or one of the things we talked about breaks, like credit markets, you know, treasure market, something like that. And then they have to reliquify that regardless of what's happening with CPI. It's a lot to digest for people. Um, so one of the one of the things that we're obviously uh, we think about a lot here is the blue collar angle. And I've, we've got two types of people that we see on a daily basis that don't know what to do right now with their money. The young ones, like the guys who are in their 20s who want to buy a house, like have saved and been responsible, saved a significant amount of money, but they can't quite afford to buy this house because it keeps getting 20% more expensive every year. And then the opposite end, which is the guys who are maybe a couple years away from retirement and they don't want to risk their money in a major way. They don't want to watch it lose 40% in the stock market the way it has or the way it could potentially in the next few years. And with what a poor investment bonds seem to be, even in the shorter term, what would be your recommendation for somebody who wants some relative safety without losing purchasing power? <laughs> I know I'm asking for the impossible here, <laughs> literally the impossible. But what is uh, what would be your recommendation to protect yourself <laughs> without losing purchasing power in the climate we're in right now, if any? Yes, it's one of those challenges where growth and volatility are often, you know, two separate things where if mm. you get more of one, you get less of the other. Right. Um, and so that that's obviously a hard thing. You can you can avoid volatility by being in cash, but then you you're a melting ice cube. Uh, on the other hand, you can buy something like Bitcoin, but then you have to build a, you have to be able to deal with like, you know, fifty to eighty percent drawdowns on an right. occasional basis, uh, and multiple years of potentially being underwater on your investment. And then, and it's still, you know, you're never 100% sure that it's going to, you know, work as intended over the very long run, even though, even though you can be, you can have a high conviction, right? So there's, right. there's different side to this coin. In, I think for many investors, uh, some degree of diversification is useful. So for example, I like the combination of Bitcoin and dividend paying stocks, for example, right? So dividend paying stocks have less volatility and in many cases are less overvalued than say the, the broad S and P 500, uh, and and so I, I find them useful as kind of a portfolio ballast, where it's not a melting ice cube like cash. Um, it's more volatile than cash, but not super volatile like Bitcoin. Gotcha. And then you can you can pair those with Bitcoin with some cash to you know kind of you know cover your next six months of expenses or rebalance into things when they break down. Uh, and so that that's kind of how I approach it. I've also you know, an inflation hedge is, is basically commodity producers, right? They, they tend to be a pretty decent uh, inflation hedge. Mm -hmm. uh, and unlike some of the hard monies like Bitcoin and gold, commodity, like industrial commodities generally go up at the moment of inflation. 
Whereas Bitcoin and gold, as we've seen, they don't necessarily go up as soon as you get a high inflation print, but over the long run, they they do better than inflation, right? So they're basically just, you know, yeah. hard money kind of winning out over soft money over the long term, whereas something like industrial commodities actually pay off generally in the moment of inflation. Because almost by definition, if inflation's high, it's because commodity commodities are scarce and expensive. Makes sense. Um, and so, there, you know, I think there are, you can build a portfolio that, you know, it's got some cash and bonds, it's got some stocks, it's got some commodities, it's got some Bitcoin. And then if you are in a position where you can own a home, uh, you know, that that gives you a pretty good kind of all-weather portfolio. And then you can weight that uh, if you're super knowledgeable on something. If you're a doctor, maybe you want to buy more healthcare stocks. If you're if you put a thousand hours into studying Bitcoin, maybe you want to be overweight Bitcoin compared to more other people, right? So I, I think people can tailor that. Yeah. Um, at least that's my approach. To zoom back out slightly, and Josh hit some of this a second ago, but Lynn, how would you characterize the economic predicament of the middle and lower class right now? I, I'm guessing you agree it's precarious. Maybe elaborate on that a little bit. So yeah, basically there's long-term cycles around this. And essentially the position that we've been in, especially in the United States, uh, uh, you know, some other countries have done this as well, but the United States has done it more so than many others, is that we, we've really kind of accumulated capital in the top 10%, especially the top 1%, and we kind of threw the bottom 90% under the bus. Um, and so, you know, we had this policy where, this goes back really to, to Triffin's dilemma, where in order to maintain the reserve currency, uh, basically we, we created so much global demand for dollars that we have to send them a lot of dollars. And the way that manifests is with a structural trade deficit. Uh, and so there's all this demand for dollars globally. It makes the cost of our exports uh, you know, basically more expensive. Uh, and it gives us a lot more import power. And so our, many of our exports become uncompetitive uh, unless they're very high margin things like healthcare or software or engineering design, things like that, or financial services. Uh, but many of our physical goods become you know, less competitive than our European, Japanese, Chinese, uh, South Southeast Asian counterparts. Uh, and so we kind of hollow out our manufacturing base at a more rapid rate than many other developed countries. Uh, and so we have a lower percentage of industrial production as a percentage of our GDP than many of our peers. Uh, and so that's obviously that disproportionately impacts blue collar workers as well as service workers that that you know, associate with blue collar workers. So for example, if you have an industrial town that decays, restaurants in that town are also going to face difficulty. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we, we've kind of punished anyone who lives in the center of the country, reward anyone who lives in like, you know, coastal cities that work in finance and tech and healthcare. Uh, and so we've, we've kind of, whenever you get this kind of dynamic in history, you get rising uh, wealth concentration, you get rising populism, you get increased political polarization, and we're seeing all the hallmarks of that now. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I think it comes down to this money system. Basically, we have this, the global financial system is inherently imbalanced. Uh, and so it kind of requires these weird, kooky things to happen uh, compared to, and then, you know, if you look at emerging markets, especially, they have trouble saving anything at all, right? Because, you know, they can save in some real estate, but that's not portable or fungible. Um, and then if they save in the local currency, they keep getting wiped out. Um, and so, you know, basically outside of something like Bitcoin that's now new to them, they didn't really have that many ways to save. And we're kind of seeing similar things to a less extreme degree 
in developed markets where if you're in a position where you can own assets like real estate and stocks, you've been able to do well in this environment. And if you're in a position where you're kind of, you know, your 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 expenses and your incomes are not that far apart, and you know, wages are being suppressed relative to asset prices, uh, you know, and you, whatever savings you're getting is not really keeping up with inflation. That's obviously really challenging for the middle class. And so there's there's so many factors at play that have been really damaging for the middle class, the blue collar class uh, throughout the United States and then in a number of other countries as well. I think I would point people, I don't remember the exact title, but you wrote a, an article last year about the wealth gap. I remember we'll link that down in the show notes, covered, a, covered some of what you just mentioned. Yeah. Something we explore frequently on here is just, and this is no single person's fault. You know, It's easy to demonize and throw clown nose on people on Twitter, but uh, at the end of the day, this is a system that's fragile, that requires a lot of manipulation and all this artificiality. It's, it's hard to say it's not leading to inequality in one, one way, shape, or form. Now, the solution to that issue is incredibly nuanced and complex, and uh, we would view it different than a lot of people that are concerned about this issue. But it is an issue, and we live in a world where we are, we are, we are feeling it and we are witnessing it a lot, and it is... Uh, it's a big, big deal for a lot of wage earners right now where things were already already tight before this all went down. How about Bitcoin? So to transition a little bit, it's obviously correlated to risk on assets. That goes without being said. As much as uh, a lot of us would like it to be decoupled, it's nowhere even close. I mean, you throw up a chart of the NASDAQ, at least recently, it's, uh, it's in lockstep. Um, what makes it that way right now? And then do you uh, see a future where Bitcoin transitions to being more risk off and actually potentially thriving in crunch environments like this? So there, there are a few factors. One is that because it's still small, volatile, and poorly understood, it, it's a risk asset for most pools of capital. You know, if someone put a thousand hours into it, maybe they don't view it that way, but people who have not will view it as a risk asset. Anything with that high volatility, uh, you know, is a risk asset for most people. Uh, and so historic, in, in Bitcoin's past, the correlation was generally lower, but it was still generally a risk on uh, asset and specifically a liquidity on asset. So going back to my rising PMI, falling PMI dynamic, so economic accelerating and decelerating, Bitcoin's bull runs historically did very well during these rising PMI environments and generally you know, stagnated or, or went down during declining PMI environments. So when liquidity is coming in, some of it finds its way to Bitcoin. And when liquidity is being pulled out, Bitcoin runs into, into turbulence. Now, in the past two and a half years, we've seen a larger than normal macro environment, meaning that you know basically had record liquidity stuffed into markets, and now we've seen a record withdrawal of liquidity in a short period of time. Uh, and so the correlation of assets across the board increased, right? It's kind of like everything went down together, mm. everything went up together, and then everything went down together. Uh, and you start to get, you know, around the margins, things separate. So, for example, value stocks went up less and then went down less. Um, but but many risk on things kind of went up and down around the same time. Um, so what I think it would take in order for, there's a couple environments where Bitcoin could decouple. One is that if you specifically have liquidity put back into markets due to, say, a recession, uh, but you have profit margins, margin suffering, due to supply chain problems and and wage increases you could see stocks kind of not do that well while something like you know bitcoin and gold that have no margin pressure 
but that benefit from liquidity could could do well. That's generally we get those types of assets kind of decoupling to the upside from stocks. Um, for Bitcoin to specifically becoming risk off asset, I think essentially it has to be far bigger and far more widely held yeah. and far more understood. So we see, for example, gold generally does better than equities in declining PMI environments. Uh, it still generally sells off in liquidity restricted environments, but it will generally sell off less than equities. And then, you know, if liquidity is abundant, but the economy is decelerating, that's when gold generally does pretty well compared to equities. And and it's just you know it's it's perceived as safe. It's well understood. It's got a long track record. It's much larger than the Bitcoin market, uh, and so it has those attributes. So I think Bitcoin have to be bigger, more widely held, better understood in order to reach that type yeah. of, of status. And then specifically when you get to what goes up during sell-offs, that's where you have unit of account and funding currencies. So so basically, if right. you have a liquidity problem, essentially the only thing that goes up is the currency with which debts are denominated in. Mm. So essentially the dollar uh, or you know specific things like shorts or long volatility positions and things like that. Are you surprised to see how gold's been performing with the kind of inflation we're seeing right now? Or do you think that's more of a more of a consequence of what the DXY has been doing as a counterbalance to it? So basically I'm a little bit surprised it's not over 2000, uh, but it's not completely shocking. It's It's one of those things where I think if you were to look at the gold and Bitcoin basket together, like there's this, there's this fund incrementum over in Europe and they've been like, you know, long-term gold bugs, uh, but they incorporated Bitcoin years ago. Basically they're, they're, you know, they like hard money in general. And so when Bitcoin started becoming big and relevant, they started paying attention to that. And they have this fund that's like, you know, mostly gold and then it's got some Bitcoin and they rebalance it. Um, and something like that has actually done pretty well. Right. So they, they kind of shore up each other's weaknesses, mm-hmm. uh, at least in this, you know, transitional environment, whatever we're in now. Um, and so I think gold has been challenged, one, by Bitcoin becoming big enough to chip into its market share, uh, especially among young people. The percentage of them that own Bitcoin compared to gold is getting pretty substantial. Um, and then, two, it's the market perception that the Fed is going to try to fight this inflation. Basically, if someone believes that the yeah. Fed is going to normalize policy rates structurally right well then they should own treasuries and dollars basically you know there's no reason to hold something that owned that yields zero if you think that you can hold treasuries and eventually get a higher rate of infl- of yield than inflation if you were going to steel man that because it it seems likely to us at least in the chair I'm sitting in that it must be believable through a certain narrative for that to for that to be the case because of the way the market's reacting Treasuries are reacting as if this this could potentially become under control and not get completely off the reservation like so many people uh, in Bitcoin tend to think. If you were going to steel man this and say, here's the reason why more traditional analysts might be correct for the next five to 10 years, everything actually is okay. Uh, inflation isn't going to get out of control. Um, settle down, everybody. Everything's going to be fine. If you had to take a stab at that, how would you approach that and how could you rationalize that? I think it's easy. It's easier to steal man the one to two year case than the five to ten year case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think it's somewhat it's a matter of time frames. Okay. And most pools of capital are focusing on those shorter time frames. They're not focusing on those longer time frames. And so positioning can be rational for one to two year view, even if you, it doesn't make sense for a five to ten year view. Um, I think. 
So I think one of the key issues is that this is an environment where basically being familiar with history books is more important than being familiar with like mo most models run on these like 20, 30, 40 year back tests, right. which were entirely in a structurally disinflationary environment, uh, kind of, you know, the eighties to the present yep. and things, things that don't go back to the twenties, thirties and forties, which is the closest environment we have to now, believe it or not, uh, are going to be somewhat blindsided by all of this. Um, but basically, if I, were to, if I were to make the case for it, you could say that, you know, large pools of capital are going to have to keep buying treasuries. That the administrations are going to be willing willing to let a recession happen uh, for a period of time until it gets bad enough that they have to reverse course. And that because, specifically because we have political gridlock in the United States, fiscal stimulus will probably come slower next time than we saw during the pandemic, right? Um, and so I, I think we could be in this period for a period of time where despite the fact that recession indicators are kind of starting to, you know, show at least like, you know, flashing a yellow light, I don't think they're going to rush in super quickly. And one thing I've been saying is that, you know, just the S&P 500 being down 20% is not going to make the Fed reverse course. It's got to be something more serious, like an actual recession or credit markets breaking or a treasury market breaking. Uh, and so I think that there's still a lot of capital that expects the Fed to jump in quickly. And, you know, really things have to get messy probably for them to jump in when inflation's 8% officially. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I think that these down cycles can go longer than people think. And I think some of the traditional capital sees that. Um so it's hard it's hard to fully steel man the case, but the the point I've been trying to make is that even though I'm an inflationist through the 2020s decade, I don't think it'll be a straight line. It was not a straight line in the 40s. It was not a straight line in the 70s, and so you had these disinflationary periods, uh, even recession periods within those decades, where their combination of price controls or you know stimulus being pulled back or tightening attempts, things like that. They would briefly start to get a handle on it until they they lost control again, and so I, I think we'll probably see instances like that. And I think we're kind of in the middle of one. Yeah, I think people underestimate how loud the alarm is on inflation in their mind right now. Like at our department, you know, and two, and if, if you're a firefighter paramedic, and two alarms come in at the same time all the time in our town, you got to kind of which direction is the closest ambulance going, sort of thing, and. The priority right now is these prints coming out in terms of consumer confidence and all this stuff. So, yeah, I think it's we're already seeing everyone's like, like they, they're going to have to step in here. They're going to have to step in here. And I think we may some people may learn a hard lesson that they're going to let it go a lot further than they expect. Do you view inevitable is a strong word, probably one you don't like, but borderline inevitable that they're going to have to step in in some way, shape or form eventually th that their hand's going to be forced here? Wait, so I think eventually under this type of policy framework, eventually you get recession. Uh, and so then you start to get, it becomes an election concern. So right now, inflation is very, very unpopular. Uh, you know, a lot of people that want jobs have jobs. Now, a lot of those wages are not going up as fast as inflation. And so they're seeing you know, their, their main concerns are foods going up, gasoline's going up, rents are going up, do something about this, right? So yeah. right now, the, 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 the more alarms are on the inflationary side. If they start to, and you know, kind of the meme I've been using is that the Federal Reserve can't—they can't print more oil, they can't print more ships, they right. can't, you know, 
so they, they can't really improve the supply side. If they want to control inflation, they have to try to uh, reduce the demand side. Yeah. Um, and so they, but the problem with that is that's basically the definition of a recession. And so it's kind of like, you know, I, Jim Bianco, the, the bond analyst, he used the, he used like the analogy where if you have a, like a leg infection and the doctor's like, oh, we can take care of that. We just got to cut off the leg. <laughs> He's like, well, I, I was hoping you could maybe do it a different way. And it's like, well, no. So right now, basically the Federal Reserve's in the cutting off the leg phase and not just the Federal Reserve, but also the Treasury because it's, you know, the Federal Reserve affects financial markets but it's the treasury, it's Congress that affects whether people get stimulus checks or not, whether they get child tax care credits or not, whether they, you know, in some countries we're seeing like fuel subsidies, food subsidies, things like that. And whether those are on or off is a, a congressional decision. So I think right now, you know, basically when, when you ask the public, what's the biggest problem, they'll say inflation. Uh, and if they keep trying to control the demand side, I think, you know, six to 12 months from now, the, you know, you'll see unemployment start to become a rising concern. And so then the calculus becomes more complicated. So right now, with official unemployment as low as it is and official CPI as high as it is, their clear mandate is to try to fight inflation. That's, you know, the alarm is stronger in that direction. And if they start to have any sort of success at controlling that, suddenly the alarm on the other side is going to start ringing louder. And so I think that people have to be careful about being premature about when policymakers will start focusing on that other alarm. Dan, does this kind of make you think about somebody who's trying to get onto the green, but they're in a sand trap right next to the green and they're just whiffing it right over to the other sand trap across and then back and forth and just getting that trap of they can never get it back on the green. It's just constant missing. Just I've been pick there. the ball up. <laughs> just, just pick it up. Just give call up. it. Equitable stroke control. It's an eight, folks, if you play golf. It's an eight, move to the next tee. You know that Austin. You know that Austin Power scene where he's like driving that cart through that narrow hallway and he tries to turn around and he gets stuck yes. in the two walls. So basically, this whole system is based on if employment gets tight and inflation starts to show its head, they try to tighten policy, uh, both both fiscally and monetarily. If things start to go in the other direction where inflation's low but unemployment's rising, they try to uh, you know loosen policy. They try to do fiscal stimulus uh, and over time, it's like that car is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. The, the distance between those two things keeps narrowing. Yep. Mm. Uh, and so as that happens, you incline towards high debt levels and inflation at the same time. Because basically, each each one you do kind of creates a long-term problem. So as they do more and more stimulus, they accumulate debt in the system. And they get structurally lower interest rates. And that makes it harder and harder to fight inflation when it shows up. And so then you're more likely to get stagflationary type of conditions which is the model that breaks the whole plan. If you have both high inflation and high employment, then you're just picking between two bad options and you're like Austin Power stuck stuck completely sideways between the two walls. Yeah. And then you have you have nowhere to go. And so I think at, basically we're in the phase now where they're they're still trying to turn toward that more disinflationary path and I think I think the you know the kind of the end game for this cycle is where you start to get recession indicators, but inflation's still hot, and then it becomes a big problem. When you think about some of these, you know, growth-heavy funds like, say, ARC, that uh, are, it's a kind of astonishing look at looking at some of these charts, uh, and and that could flip around. I mean, that, that we're talking short term here. We may look at it three years from now, and it looks brilliant. But one would venture a guess that someone like Kathy Wood has been surprised by how her fund has performed, say, the last six months. What, uh, 
what factor do you think she's most surprised by that's caused the move? Like someone that was long growth that got caught this off sides, at least at this date and time. What do you think has been most confusing or surprising or frustrating for them that they didn't anticipate? So it's hard to read their mind, but I think there's two key things. One is valuations. So, you know, you can be bullish on an industry, but if you get to 20 times sales, you know, it's really hard to get a positive or, you know, rate of return on that over the long term. And then the market starts to want to price that risk better. Uh, so, and it, and a lot of those were based on, you know, they were unprofitable, but they had rapid top line growth and they relied a lot on issuing equity to their employees as part of their expenses. And that works better when their equities are high priced. Uh, and so you essentially had an unsustainable situation. And I, I think many people underestimate how much risk is involved when equity valuations are that high, even if the underlying company continues to grow at whatever reasonable pace it is. Number two, uh, you know, Kathy Wood specifically was expecting, I think it was like, what, $12 oil. Uh, I think she's, I, I, I think they might be overestimating how how quickly some of their alternative energy uh, you know, technologies can come online and reduce the demand for oil and other and and natural gas and other things like that. So they were expecting deflation in energy prices, and instead they got inflation in energy prices, and so that results in higher yields, higher discount rates for these very long duration growth uh, oriented types of of equities. And when you when you're comparing when you're considering buying a stock. You know what most large pools of capital will do is compare that to a long duration treasury, right? So if if ten year treasuries are yielding eight percent, which they used to, uh, then I you know I I would only buy an equity if I can expect maybe twelve percent returns or better. Whereas if treasury yields are one percent, I might be willing to settle for five percent expected returns on those equities. You know it's it's a bummer, but it's still better than treasuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's the equity risk premium. Now, if I have that position on and then treasuries go from 1% to 3% or 4%, uh, then suddenly, you know, my valuations of equities probably have to come down a little bit. I have to, I have to start, I have to start getting, expecting six, seven or 8% returns in order to make that investment make sense from a risk adjusted perspective. And so if people bought too high, that's when they're prone to seeing a lot of their valuations go down. Uh, And so value stocks are less sensitive to interest rates. Uh, than growth stocks. And so during the whole kind of, you know, uh, COVID bubble, you had yields go super low, you had growth stocks go super high valuation. And then as yields started to come back up, the bubble in those growth stocks started to to come off. Uh, a point to point to a couple other pieces of yours, as you were talking that I thought of. Your discounted cash flow analysis tutorial, if any of that went over your head, phenomenal piece. And then I know you doubled back to some of that in your recent stagflation piece. But yeah, the the math that underpins these valuations, when you think about it from a discounted cash flow perspective, the the impact is really, really big. And I love the way you went through example after example on that. All right, let's pivot over to Bitcoin. Generically, for someone that's newer, confused, maybe frustrated, off the bat, why is Bitcoin so volatile? So one is that in order to monetize from zero to trillions, you have to have volatility to the upside, massive return to the upside. And if that's going to happen, you're going to have people leverage on that. uh, And you're going to get a thousand imitators. Hmm. And so basically that becomes unsustainable. And so every once in a while, 
all that has to be shaken out. All the all the bad leverage has to be wiped away. All you know, a bunch of the imitators have to be crushed. Um, and so you know, kind of in any of these these growth cycles, if if it was easy, everyone would pile on it. It'd become a bubble and it'd be done. Uh, whereas what happens is you start to see more and more you know problems grow on it, and eventually those get wiped away. And also the entire world is basically having to reassess what money is. And so, you know, for, for centuries, there's competing views of what makes good money, right? So the Austrians have a view, the, the, you know, the Keynesians have a view, the MMT people have a view. There's all these views about what makes good money. And it's kind of funny in this whole crypto Cambrian explosion, we're kind of seeing that play out in real time. It's, you know, they're right and wrong answers yeah. for, for what is money. Yeah. So People say it's a shared delusion. It's like, well, if you if you share a delusion in something that someone else can easily print, your shared delusion is going to end pretty quickly, right? So, so yeah, there there are quantifiable and real world, you know, walls you can run into if you're wrong on what is good money. And so, what we're seeing right now is a rapid iteration of testing every possible way of doing money, and then you know, filtering out all the wrong ways. And so, during bull markets, Bitcoin faces the problem of dilution where a thousand competitors come up and start attracting capital into them. Uh, and then when you have a declining PMI environment, basically risk-off, liquidity-off environment, uh, everything that was fragile, everything that was not solving a problem, uh, you know, gets, you know, either just destroyed or severely impaired. Uh, and then even the good things go down. I mean, basically liquidity comes in across the board. Uh, but things that are actually solving a problem and things that are their best in their industry come back in the next cycle. And so we, we've seen over time, you know, Bitcoin faces risks during the bull market from all the dilution. And then during the bear market, it faces the obvious risks of prices going down and less capital coming into the space and viewing it as risk off. And so it's got to go through multiple of those cycles uh, to basically shake out every wrong view of, of you know, how to, how to make good money. And it's got to shake off all of the bad leverage. And, you know, basically the original premise had this idea. Uh, and it, you know, is purposely simple, Bitcoin, and it was designed well for decentralization, and they avoided any sort of scammy launch, right? So like Satoshi didn't give himself half the coins up front, so they kind of had this stars-aligned launch. And you know, if people people don't just accept every one of those premises, they don't just accept the nodes have to be small, they don't just accept that we can't have more functionality on the base layer, they don't just accept that you know maybe it'd be better if we had a, a you know a dog mascot for it right so you know yeah. so the, every, so every one of those premises gets tested you know so maybe instead of energy input we want to manage it with human consensus proof of stake maybe instead of of you know being simple we want to make it complex maybe instead of small block size we want to have big block size so every one of those things gets tested and you know the market sorts out over the long run and then it becomes not a matter of guessing how, you know what is the best blockchain money it becomes a matter of kind of historical fact. What is the best blockchain money? And so I think basically every wrong answer has to be explored along this path to kind of process of elimination, prove why one model is the best. If you were to kind of categorize this entire crypto landscape. So I heard you use the phrase this week, like the crypto Ponzi industry. So we have Bitcoin, we have the crypto Ponzi in industry. We have like just outright meme coins. And then maybe we have some leftovers you know, I, we want to be careful because we, we're not spending hundreds of hours researching all these altcoins. We just don't have the bandwidth for it. So 
we want to be careful not to be too dogmatic and binary, but the way we kind of look at it is, I mean, we would definitely be in the maxi camp. Maybe it's 98%, just as an example, 98% bull crap, 2% substance, but might as well call it a hundred, especially when you're talking to an audience like we are, right? And there's just, there's no other project that's really stood out to us as having fundamentals or solving a substantive problem in the landscape. How do you kind of, is it Bitcoin and everything else is a joke? Is it Bitcoin? Are there other projects that you're like, there's some validity here? Walk us through sort of how you would break up the landscape outside of Bitcoin that includes crypto, stable coins, whatnot. What camps do you put those in? Sure. Yeah. So one is I don't try to prove a negative. So I never start with the assertion that everything is bad. Uh, instead, it's just I have a high threshold for what I would consider investable. Uh, and so Bitcoin's met that threshold uh, comfortably. Uh, the other area that I think has use is collateralized stable coins, right? So, you know, and Alex Gladstein has, has pointed this out a number mm. of times. For example, if you're in Argentina or Lebanon, your local currency is rapidly deteriorating. If you try to hold dollars in the bank, they get confiscated. Uh, and if you try to just say purely hold something like Bitcoin, you, you're, you're exposed to all the volatility, which is not great if you're trying to manage, you know, say, one to six month working capital. Right. If right. you have expenses and liabilities that you have to meet in a short period of time. Uh, and so having dollar based stable coins that, you know, their local co- current uh, country can't confiscate or or, you know, take away is is has utility. Um, and also just in, in offshore exchanges, uh, you know, basically the, the stable coins have, have kind of replaced Bitcoin as a unit of account for their for their ongoing trades. Uh, you know, so I, I think I, I've been bullish on the total market capitalization of collateralized stable coins not not the algorithmic stable coins and things like that but the actual you know uh, an entity that holds t-bills and cash and then issues a token that is redeemable for for dollars um so that that's that'd be one area and then you know i, I try to make the steel mine case for smart contracts where you know we we know that centralized databases have value right so so if you know twitter is a centralized database. It, it's, it's, it's efficient, it's quick, it's cheap to run. And then we know decentralized databases have value, which is Bitcoin. It, it's useful as a, it's, it's the most immutable ledger. Um, and then the question is, is it useful to have a database that's federated where a, a handful of large entities have to agree to edit it uh, and can independently audit it in real time? Uh, that sounds like it's useful. I don't know the total addressable market of that concept. That that's essentially the steel main case for a smart contract. I think the problem you get into is when you market smart contract platforms as decentralized because they're kind of prone to centralization over time. And so some of these some ways just cut to the chase from the beginning. Like the liquid network right. that runs on top of Bitcoin is basically just from the beginning acknowledging that it's, you know, making trade-offs. It's it's a it's a federated network that can do it's like Bitcoin, but it's like say it's faster, it's a little bit more private. Uh, it's got a little bit more functionality, expressivity with it. You can issue securities on it. Uh, but of course, it's reliant on Bitcoin. They're not trying to get seniorage from doing it. Um, and so you can make a case why some sort of federated database on a, on a blockchain could be useful. Uh, I just don't view it as money. I view it as an equity. I view it as like a technology layer that could serve some roles, maybe in, maybe in, in exchanges, maybe in markets, maybe you know something like that. Um, but you know, I would just I would just classify it as an equity, kind of a, a pseudo decentralized operating system where it's not really decentralized, but it's it's more decentralized than just one uh, ledger. And so I, I and then anything outside of that, 
you get really sketchy, right? So anything outside of that, you get you get meme coins, which you know they're fads; they don't go anywhere. Uh, and you know, in addition, that that whole federated concept, like a you know basically smart contract platforms, that's a very commoditized type of industry. You know, basically, it's going to compete on throughput and fees. Um, and so it's just mm. it's not something that I want to invest, you know, invest heavily in, right? So yeah, they're going to beat really each other the over the head. So much competition. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you know, while I don't say they're useless, I just say one, they're not money, and and two, you know, at best they're like VC speculative uh, investments. And right now, the ones that exist are almost entirely fueled by speculation. So so entities come in. You know, these are regulators have not caught up to the this industry yet right in terms of uh you know basically being able to issue things that are securities directed to the public without going through prior channels uh, that used to be have to be kind of these regulated hurdles and so the it's kind of like a bunch of unre- unregulated penny stocks really where they anything can be said people buy them um and so because you're in that offshore regulatory gray zone you're able to get away with a lot and you know, people can make the libertarian case that there shouldn't be regulation, but, the, but then the problem is you have kind of, you have like, you still have regulation on normal securities, but then that other thing just exists entirely. So, so the only thing, basically, whether or not you're in favor of no rules or a lot of rules, most people would at least be in favor of consistent rules. Yeah. So kind of whatever those things are doing, they should have to comply with whatever securities laws exist, right? So I, I, so I think the problem we're seeing now is that there's just a lot of people that are kind of making money while the sun shines and making hay while the sun shines. Uh, and they're saying, hey, you know, this is still a kind of an arbitrage area. We can make a lot of tokens. We can make a lot of promises. We can, you know, kind of entice a lot of people in. And then we can dump our stake and go buy Bitcoin or go buy, you know, real estate uh, and leave the bag holders there. And so I, I think it's, it, it, for the most part, outside of Bitcoin and collateralized stable coins, it's, it's, there's not a lot of use case. And it's, it's basically based on, Artificial yields, rehypothecation, uh, VC fueled kind of incentive to get people in, and not a lot of long term value being created. What do you think is the greatest challenge that Bitcoin's yet to achieve? So, a couple of things. One is it needs more regulatory clarity over time, uh, which it, it's kind of come in, in phases, right? There's no kind of one moment where it gets regulatory clarity, but over time, it's become more and more institutionally acceptable to hold it. Uh, so, that's number one. Um, Number two, um, I, I think just like I said before, every wrong answer has to be tested before people realize what the right answer is. And that just takes time. Um, and so, uh, and then, you know, I think many wrong answers have to be tested multiple times because, you know, first yeah. you're going to test it and then you say, well, you know, that project did this wrong. Let's do it like this. And then that, that goes bad. Like, you know, those two didn't see this third thing. So they, they try the third thing. And then after a while, people are like, you know, get out of here. Like, it's right. So, you know, so I think it's one of those things. Each wrong answer has to be tested multiple times and multiple variations uh, before capital gets tired of just lighting itself on fire and wants to have have better you know returns. Um, so I think that that dilution is just this ongoing process that has to get just wiped out every once in a while. Um, I also think it you know you need the right macro environment so you can't have a liquidity off environment. Uh, you know there's very few pools of capital right now that are like you know what. I want to buy Bitcoin right now. Like, yeah. it's just not, right. it's, it's just not, not going to yeah. happen. You know, there's, there's a, you know, there might be some new Michael Saylor out there. That's like, now's the moment I've been, I've been looking at this for years and I want to jump in. That's basically what I did during when I got in, in April, 2020, 
So I was buying in that environment where no one wanted to buy, but that's because I had been studying it for years at that point. You know, so basically I had, I had kind of learned over time. So when I saw that moment, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to buy. So you'll get some people like that that are coming in, in this type of environment. Uh, but really it's not until you get the next kind of risk on cycle, I think that you get, you know, a lot of new capital coming into the space. So I, I think Bitcoin still has to sort out a couple of things like that. Um, and it just has to grow. It just has to slowly grind up in terms of adoption. There's no one thing it needs. I, I think it's just time and, and, you know, a process. I like your comment on bad ideas being tested multiple times. It's totally understandable too. We're, we're onboarding in these bull runs. We're not onboarding percentages. We're onboarding orders of magnitude on the network. Like when you see the growth. So, I mean, We've been in since 2017. We went through the ICO craze, the last collapse. I mean, it's just a complete rerun the last two years. Like, there's, there's new ideas. There's now monkey JPEGs and other crazy shit. But you're like, it's the same thing. But is it, no matter how loud you scream from the mountaintop, you have all these new individuals that have to relearn the lesson about what is and isn't a good idea. We need to have patience for that. We, we've been through that process, at least Josh and I have. Another thing you said a second ago that I love, and I really appreciate the way you frame it, you could almost say, not to categorize here, but you're, you're a Bitcoin investment maximalist. Like what is what reaches that investable threshold? What has a risk profile that's worth putting your hard-earned capital in? And there's a difference between saying everybody else is a complete idiot or a scam artist there's a difference between saying that and saying this is the only asset that we view as investable at this point in time. And I think there's some maturity in framing it that way. Let's talk about this difference we, you hinted at a second ago between algorithmic and collateralized stable coins. And maybe that'll push us into what just happened here with Luna and Terra. What's the difference between those two? And then based on your understanding, what went down this last week with UST and Luna? So there, there are three main types of stable coins that exist. Uh, the, the first and the most workable type is collateralized stable coins, crypt, like basically fiat collateralized stable coins, where an entity, you know, you wire dollars to an entity, that entity holds dollars, and they issue a token that is redeemable for dollars, but it trades on a blockchain. Uh, and so it has all of the liquidity and usefulness of a blockchain, trades 24-7, it can be sent peer-to-peer, um, uh, but it is redeemable for dollars and therefore it holds that quote unquote stable value where it, it loses value in the long run, but it's stable day to day. Um, those still have risks, obviously, because one, you have to, you know, the, 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 the entity holding the dollars has to actually be holding them. You know, they, you can't have like the owner run away and, and just, you know, leave. Um, so you need some sort of independent auditor to come in and, and basically assess that monthly or quarterly to make sure they're holding the assets that they claim to. Number two, there's there's risks around the type of collateral that they hold. And so, you know, basically there's there's two potential types. One is if you hold an equal amount of assets to liabilities, then your assets better be risk-free, right? So they better be 100% in cash and T-bills mm. uh, because you can't, you can't withstand any credit loss. Uh, now, on the other hand, you could have a more bank-like model where 
your assets have a variety of risk profile. You have cash and T-bills. You also have corporate bonds and you also have loans that can lose value. But then you have to have more assets than liabilities. You have to have a capital buffer right. so that if you lose a certain percentage of your riskier investments, you're still solvent. And the problem that we've seen in these early collateralized stable coins is that they hold assets supposedly one-to-one, but then some of their assets are in non-risk-free assets, which which is a problem. And they've some of them have you know had periods of time of being unbacked because of counterparty risk or losses, um, and so we've seen some more mature stablecoins come along and, and say okay we're going to hold 100% T bills in cash, right? But so basically when you when you're, these these overall designs are stable, uh, useful to people, um, but they're not fully you know they're not truly decentralized they only decentralize the peer-to-peer layer they don't centralize the custodial layer so they can still be blacklisted and they can still you know have that counterparty risk but they they are serving a market purpose um and so that's that's one type another type is crypto collateralized stable coins like Dai, for example where you know you can say i'm gonna i'm gonna put some ethereum into this contract and i have to put in like you know 200% 200% Ethereum, and then I can, I can get out 100% stable coins. And they're not backed by fiat. They're, back, they're backed by Ethereum. But the idea is that they're backed as long as Ethereum does not go down more than, say, 50%, uh, at which point they'd be redeemed and you'd, you'd have liquidations. Now, those are obviously a lot riskier than fiat collateralized ones. The advantage is they're not backed up by any sort of central custodian. The problem is those smart contracts are hackable. Uh, the entities, you know, there's still a lot of the, ent- the the people that control those smart contracts still have a lot of kind of centralizing influence. Uh, and exactly, you know, because this industry is volatile, you get these drawdowns, especially in things like Ethereum and, and other kind of tokens. Uh, and when that happens, you get liquidations. And the blockchain becomes very, very full, right? So basically, it's the worst time to liquidate when everybody needs to liquidate. And so those collateralized stablecoins have increasingly relied on using things like the, the the fiat collateralized stablecoins as some of their collateral. So the whole purpose is that they're trying to be decentralized stablecoins, but then they're increasingly using centralized stablecoins as their collateral uh, rather than Ethereum or in addition to Ethereum. And so you have just another layer of, of risk built on top of something that already has some risk. And so, you know, they're not as silly as algorithmic stable coins, but they're way sillier than just normal, uh, you know, fiat collateralized stable coins. And then you get into the third camp, which is the, the really silly camp, which is algorithmic stable coins. This area has been fraught with failure. Uh, and that's where you have a stable coin that's not fully collateralized. It's not like it doesn't have a specific threshold where it gets liquidated. And instead, you basically have one side that is supposed to be stable and it has this automatic mechanism where you can convert it into another token and that, and it kind of pushes the volatility onto that token. Um, and the problem there, it kind of works like an emerging market central bank where they have to hold, you know, gold and treasuries and they issue their own currency. And if, if they start to get, you know, weakening in their currency, they can sell some of their treasuries and gold in order to backstop their currency. But imagine trying to build that on autopilot uh, and, without capital controls and without an economy to tax. Right. So it's like, it's like the world's hardest problem to solve. And so, so it, they, they generally, yeah. So they, <laughs> they, they rely on first in first out, you know, it works for a while and then eventually it blows up. And so that's what we saw with Luna 
And I wrote about this, you know, starting a month over a month before it happened and then kind of updated a week before it happened, where I was seeing increasing risk in that ecosystem where, you know, the basically the demand for their algorithmic stablecoin was based on artificially high yields uh, that were not sustainable, basically Ponzi type of, of right. dynamics. What were they offering? Yeah, 20% and to everybody, right? With no matter, was there even a cap on how much money you could put in and, and receive your 20% farm annual yield? I don't know if there are limits, but they, I mean, there were billions in it, right? So you could, you could, you could put in money, it attracted all that capital. Uh, and those yields were not sustainable. They're basically VC supported. It's kind of like, you know, right. rolling out a carrot and getting a lot of people in. Um, and, you know, smart money would get out before that starts to break. Uh, and, you know, when I was describing the problems, it's kind of like saying that, you know, here's conditions that are suitable for a forest fire. There's it's dry. We've not had a fire in a long time. There's a lightning but you don't know storm. when lightning. Yeah. You don't know when lightning is going to hit a hit a tree. Right. And then, so it's hard to say it's going to break next week. It's going to break next month. It's going to break next quarter. Who knows? But you're saying this is not, this is not a good system. This is, there's danger here and it breaks either when it just runs out of, you know, the basically run out of a new entrance or, Someone specifically attacks the peg, which happens all the time in emerging markets and even sometimes developed markets. Uh, pegs are just inviting attack from well-capitalized attackers. Uh, it's basically just the market trade. Uh, and so that's what happened to them. They, they basically had attack surface based on artificial economics, and it was attacked. And so algorithmic stable coins are the silliest of the bunch because they're pretty much destined for failure. The attackers were Josh and I, Lynn. We, uh, we unleashed the, our billions of dollars uh balance sheet here at bcb on this yeah the blue collar um, fortress fund lynn have you have you seen the uh cory clifston threw it in our thread when we said you were coming on it's a picture of you and kicking do kwan in the balls and the top says why kwan do <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's a gem i was uh surprised to see it in there but it was well and it, it honestly it's not like he just he must have had somebody on the Swan team or something like a graphic designer put this together because it's not like he just transposed the faces on there. It looks really well done. You do have a martial arts background, am I right? I do, yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know who made who made that particular meme, but um, yeah, yeah, I have martial arts background. So you you've mentioned the long term debt cycle, and obviously we all know that's a Dalio. Um, that that was like a concept originated by him. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on his Changing World Order book. And some of the conclusions he comes to at the end, especially China being the logical successor to the United States as far as the next empire, how likely do you think that is? And could it go the way of Japan? Like back in the 80s, everybody thought Japan was this next empire that was going to supersede the US. And then it kind of receded into, I mean, what it is now. It just didn't overtake the US like everyone anticipated. Uh, so... I agree with that book less than the long-term debt cycle theory, but I still think there's a lot of value in the analysis, right? So long-term debt cycle, I think is, is pretty much spot on and is something I've done a lot of additional research on, um, especially when you combine it with, say, the fourth turning, you kind of get two sides of the same coin. You get the quantitative side, the qualitative side. When it comes down to analyzing rising and falling empires, there's a lot more variables involved. Um, and so it's unmistakable that you do see right now American decline uh, and kind of rising Chinese influence. Uh, the, so it, it has some things going for it that say Japan and the Soviets didn't. One is that China's population is far, far larger than the United States. And, and two, um, 
if you look back long enough in history, you know, China was like the biggest economy, right? So yeah. it's not like this small thing coming out of nowhere. It's got this very, very long history. And it's kind of basically, you know, due to various historical things like the opium wars and things like that, it was kind of artificially suppressed for the 1800s and 1900s. And now it's just kind of coming back to the status that it always had, right? So it's got some differences. I think it's got more legs than, say, Japan or, or Russia. Uh, now, but they are, they do have risks. One is that their geography is limited compared to the United States, right? They don't have the same coastal access as the United States. If you look at a map of, of China, you know, it looks like they have a lot of coast, but a lot of that is like shallow coast. They're basically boxed in by Japan. They're boxed in by a lot of those Southeast Asian countries. And they actually have very, very limited direct deep water access uh, compared to the United States. And number two, their their water and and you know other systems like that are a lot less useful than the united states so they're they're, they're starting from a, a period of just uh, a less ideal geography uh so they had the population advantage uh but they had the geography disadvantage and then i think you know their their governance obviously has some pros and cons in some ways when you have that much centralization you can develop faster because you're a little bit more organized and you can you can think longer than four-year election cycles uh but you know, as as any kind of student of economics would know, it's very hard to centrally organize things for long periods of time without having inefficiencies build up, right? So they they basically have that. It comes at the cost of authoritarianism, and it comes at the cost of these kind of deliberate bubbles being built up. Uh, and so, I think you know we're kind of seeing now the challenges to to China's governance system as they deal with the virus, as they deal with with you know kind of some of their some of their commodity shortages and things like that. Uh, and so I think we're in an environment where we're, instead of having an empire replace another empire, I think we're basically having normalization where the United States reached abnormally high levels of, you know, global dominance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of this, this perfect scenario where, you know, in the 1800s, China was suppressed. Uh, and then in the, in the 1900s, uh, the United States came on the right side of World War II. Uh, and, you know, basically Europe was devastated, Japan was devastated, China was devastated, and there was the United States. Uh, and now that we're seeing, we, we saw the rebuilding of Europe, we saw the rebuilding of Japan, we saw the rise of China. I think we're in a, just a more multipolar environment going forward. And that we're not going to be in an environment where one country has the reserve currency that all the other countries have to own. Uh, I think instead, you know, we're just seeing more, some ways, decentralization and more uh, multipolar type of environment. So that, that's where I would probably differ to some extent. And they, they, they face obviously pretty systemic risks over there in China related to their real estate market relative to the, you know, kind of the, the you know, whatever level of, of control they have over their population. It's, it's a fragile system kind of inherently. To tie this back into Bitcoin, I don't know if somebody transposed like this orange arc on Dalio's world orders and different, you know, reserve currency regimes, right? the Dutch, the English, the dollar, and then, you know, there's this Bitcoin arc. I think Jack Dorsey actually retweeted this. You just kind of outlined, you see this potential numerous reserve currency environment, multipolar environment. Do you, as you look into the future of Bitcoin, you think it's kind of a pipe dream to view it as a global reserve asset? You see it just kind of sitting as store of value alongside a number of different fiats. If we were to go out on a 10, 20, 30 year, even beyond timeline, and you were to take your best guess on where you see Bitcoin ending up on the global landscape, where is that? So kind of like how 
corporations in many cases have become more powerful than countries. You know, maybe not the biggest countries, but but basically the biggest, you know, multi-trillion dollar corporations rival the size and and kind of influence of mid-level countries. Um, and they have this, you know, kind of global reach, you know, in a way that a typical country does not, right? So so Apple in many ways has a global reach. Same with Microsoft, uh, these kind of the Google, these these unanimous companies. And I think Bitcoin is the monetary equivalent, although I think its total adjustable market is even higher. Uh, but basically, I think that, you know, I think it's a credible argument that it's not China that becomes next dominant. You know, I think it becomes a dominant. It already is. It's, it's a dominant economy, not not the dominant economy. But I, I think you can have Bitcoin become a dominant money and then it could be on its way to becoming the dominant money. Basically, the, the, the you know, it's, if you look at a chart of different countries money supply, the value of that money supply, say, in, in, as if you denominate in dollars, Bitcoin keeps coming up the list over the long terms of, of how big it is if you compare it to other countries. And so you can have basically this, you know, global nation state that's decentralized and and just building up over time. And it's basically touching almost every country. Uh, and that, it, you know, by extension, it kind of has more power than, than most countries do. And so I think that over time, if Bitcoin is able to continue its adoption, and right now I don't see any any key risks that would prevent that. I think it has risks, but I think there's there's nothing kind of inherently in its way to preventing that from happening over the next decade. Uh, that I think its its total market is going to keep going up, and that as a money, it's going to become one of the biggest, if not the biggest, yeah, uh, you know, monies over time, unless it gets hit by some sort of tail risk that that kind of brings it off that course. And so my base case is until I see evidence otherwise. I think its trajectory is just structurally higher because it's structurally superior. Yeah, this kind of harkens back to the changing, or not the changing world order, the uh, sovereign individual thesis, where all of the, you know, this could be another kind of entity in the world that is not necessarily nation state, but nation state like, where people have identified themselves as similar, um, have, a th- have a similar thought process on how things should work and are almost like joined together in a digital world more than a geographical world. It's an interesting thought process. Speaking of books, Lynn, is there a particular book that you're a huge fan of that you don't hear talked about a lot? Something that you're, uh, that you'd recommend? We're always uh, up for good book recommendations. I often recommend lessons of history. Does that Durant? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So it's it's written in the sixties and it's like a hundred pages and it just basically the, the goal is to cover 5,000 years of human history in 100 pages. And what they often do is they'll present one case and then they'll go, they'll rewind and they'll present the opposite view. Uh, and so, you know, like basically they'll, they'll say, here's what happened from some perspectives. And then let's, let's reverse that and let's see what the other perspective would say about that. Right. And, and so, and I often warn people because one, you know, this is written in the 60s. One of the chapters, when you start reading it, it seems racist. <laughs> and then when you keep reading it, they're like, well, let's reverse that. And then they go back and they counter everything they just said. So I, I try to give that caveat that one, you have to, it was written a while ago, but also it's actually, it's, it's better than you think when you start reading a couple of paragraphs in that chapter. But they do that for economics. They do that for, they do that for multiple different disciplines where they go, they, 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 they Look at, at all the different ways that countries have interacted, at, at the ways that people within countries interact, how econ- economics work. And I, I think it's just it's one of those things where you get a lot of information out of 100 pages that is hard to replicate anywhere else. Good recommendation. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll close with this question. 
I want to explore, you just use the word tail risks. I want to explore what you view as actually viable risks for Bitcoin, things to keep an eye on, and, and maybe particular focus right now to assuage the concerns of some listeners and, and as part of your answer, maybe talk about price because it sounds really cool to say, oh, price doesn't matter. Just keep hodling and DCAing. And Josh and I would certainly agree having been in five years, like this, this dip doesn't have us worried about our Bitcoin thesis. But there certainly are things that could happen to market cap that would concern you. If Bitcoin goes down to $300 in three months, three of us would agree something's afoot. If in 20 years it accrues no more buying power, we would agree the thesis is violated. So maybe tail risks and in particular, what could happen with price or market cap that would actually concern you about the viability of this as a solution to current economic problems? It's it's a good set of questions, and I actually have a draft article that I'm working on to kind of analyze viable Bitcoin risks. And so I don't, I don't consider any asset to be risk-free, which is why I'm not 100%, 100% exposed to any one asset. Um, so I'm structurally bullish on Bitcoin, but I, I do think there are some hurdles that still has to go through on its way to monetization. Number one would be a macro risk. If, if somehow they're able to, you know, like gold was suppressed for like two decades. I mean, it basically had this, you know, when it was on, when it was, when it was depegged from the dollar in the 1970s, gold had this huge run. It went up orders of magnitude in the 70s. And then it had a 20 year bear market where it was rehypothecated uh, and they were able to have positive real yields on dollars and treasuries. And so, you know, basically gold was pushed aside for two decades until. You know, it, it took a long time of that fiat system playing out and more and more dilution happening uh, until the 2000s when gold finally had another notable bull run. And so, you know, basically, if macro forces are able to, you know, keep the wheels on the on the track more than some people think, you can have periods of time where Bitcoin is is maybe not growing as quickly as people would expect. Um, uh, no, so that's not my base case, but it's you know, it's basically you, you have to be aware of that argument. Um, Number two would be technical risk, right? So at the end of the day, Bitcoin is a network, you know, you know, created by humans, run by humans. And even though it's not proof of stake, it's, you know, it's automated, it's using energy to come to a consensus on the blockchain. Uh, you know, it still has some degree of technical risk. The, the whole marketing of, of Bitcoin, the thesis of Bitcoin is that you can run your own node and nobody can push updates onto you, right? So unlike Ethereum, there's no difficulty bomb. There's nothing that kind of kills your, your node over time, uh, at least for 100 years when something like the timestamp gets, you know, runs into challenges or something like that. That might have to be edited. But basically, there's no one who can push updates onto your node. Uh, and But that's based on the idea that your node continues to function without bugs being exploited. There have been bugs in the past uh, specifically, there's you know the inflation incident, and then there were a number of bugs that were discovered that were not exploited and they were later fixed, right? That they could have been an issue but were not. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if there was some sort of like library exploited or something like that where existing nodes were compromised, that puts the whole self sovereignty in a in a, a kind of a corner because then you're forced to update, uh, and yeah. people might disagree on what to update to. You could have a chain split. Uh, and so I think that even that could be a survivable incident, but that'd be a huge setback to have some sort of major, uh, you know, kind of bug exploit at this point. Now, by keeping the code simple, by having so many smart people review it, by being slow to update nodes to new updates, uh, and, and being able to reverse to older nodes when, when, when you know, when something does happen, uh, I think that risk can be mitigated. It kind of has to be treated like, like nuclear software. They purposely update it very slowly and very cautiously 
because all you want it to do is work. You don't want to have special mm-hmm. features. You don't want you just the number one thing is not to break it. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that there is still a you know there's always a small risk of some sort of cataclysmic bug that is found and exploited throughout the existing node base. Um, uh, so there's that. Uh, and then there's you know over the very long term we have to see Bitcoin transition to a fee based system rather than a block subsidy system. And you could have, you know, I would say decentralization, like decentralization is not a spectrum up to a certain point. It's kind of like I would use the analogy of launching something to orbit. Either you get into orbit or you don't. But once you're in orbit, there are different heights of orbit Mm. that something can reach that determines, you know, how hard it would be to come back down. And you can also push something so far into orbit that it just leaves Earth entirely, right? So it's both a spectrum, but there's also a critical threshold. So I would say that unlike just about any crypto project, Bitcoin has passed the threshold of being decentralized, but there still are degrees of decentralization that I would like to see improved. So it, you know, historically, there's been a, a handful of companies that make all the miners, right? I think that that's being addressed now with the introduction of Intel and Square and Blockstream, right? There, I think we're seeing more diversification going forward, but there has been supply chain centralization. Uh, and, you know, for a while we saw the majority of hash rate was in China. Now we're seeing a lot of the hash rate in the United States. Uh, and so that's, you know, only one part of the decentralization puzzle along with nodes. But you could have, you know, if you have the majority of miners end up in one jurisdiction and then the government says you have to restrict certain types of transactions, you know, you have to enforce this this soft work, right? You, you could have challenges to the censorship resistance of Bitcoin. That you know are not unrecoverable, but they're they're not great, and so and that partially relies on having minor revenue be pretty high over the long term, including successfully turning into uh, a fee-based system. And because block size is tight, and you can only do something like 100 or 150 million transactions a year in, in a world of you know seven or eight billion people, uh, you know I think if Bitcoin continues to be adopted, uh, I don't think fee revenue will be a problem. Right? And there'd be right. tons of demand for block space. But if you were to have multi-decade stagnation for any reason, uh, you could start to get pretty low you know, minor revenue. And so the, the ability to attack it could increase over time and the ability to centralize it. Uh, and so you know, I think that, that there still are some centralization pressures that you want to see improved over time. Uh, and some of those comes with adoption and just greater supply chain diversification, uh, you know, kind of ongoing usage of the block space. Uh, and so I, you know, and I think the last thing would be, you know, I think Bitcoin's gotten big enough where it's very hard for developed markets to ban it. Um, so, you know, it's really hard to outright just outlaw it if you're not in an authoritarian regime. But one thing you can do is just cut off all the fiat inflows. You can say banks can't send money to crypto exchanges. Uh, and so that, that you know, all, like, all the incoming like, streams of adoption go from fire hoses to like garden hoses, right? It becomes very hard to get more capital into the space. Um, and that makes it, that slows down growth. Uh, and so I, I think that that's still an attack vector where Bitcoin is big enough where it's hard to do that now when you have multiple billionaires own it, when a big percentage of the American people own some Bitcoin. Uh, and for the, a lot of them, it's a single issue voting thing that they'll vote on. It's becoming increasingly harder for countries to cut it off. And we've seen it, even some countries try to do it and then back up. 
and be like, right. hey, we're mm-hmm. actually this is a this is a bad idea. We're realizing we're just cutting ourselves off from the Bitcoin network. Uh, but I I still think that United States and Europe are big enough to be major disruptions should they succeed in doing something like that. Um, the U.S. political environment is polarized enough that I don't really see that happening, right? If you go back to the the gold ban of the of the 1930s, you had an incredibly kind of centralized. You had you had a ton of you had basically a landslide election, uh, and so you had a lot of of you know uh, political power that could just kind of do what they want to do. Whereas in this more polarized environment, it's harder to do something like that. And so I, I think Bitcoin is most likely past that threshold, but I think it, it would be nice to see another cycle of adoption to make sure it's kind of firmly past that threshold. So if I were to summarize those, it's technical risk, it's some degree of supply chain risk and, and kind of minor centralization. Uh, and then it's, you know, basically the the major fiat on ramps in the United States and Europe are, are still somewhat of a vulnerability. Very well explored. Yeah. Cannot wait for that article. Um, we might one. not have to worry about Coinbase. I mean, it's been looking pretty, pretty frail in the last few days. What was it down to like 40 bucks? Watch those guys just go belly up or get bought out. It's a tough, it's a tough space to build in. It really is. It's, it's a crazy landscape. And, uh, despite throwing some stones, we do feel for a lot of people that have suffered some losses and we, we've been through a cycle where we learned some hard lessons and hopefully some other people will, will have that same journey this go around. Yeah. Call for help. Don't, uh, don't do anything crazy, especially if you lost a lot of money, like it's, you're going to be okay. Don't, don't jump. Keep learning, keep researching, keep reading Lynn Alden stuff. Lynn, thank you so much for a lot of time here this morning. Um, soaked up a lot from what you had to say. Give our audience a handoff to you and your material where they can interact with your ideas. Uh, so I'm at Lynn Alden Contact on Twitter, uh, lynnalden.com. I publish a lot, of, a lot of macro research as well as Bitcoin research. Uh, and so thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Thanks, Lynn. Our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast.